start with, so maybe where you are, you might just want to close your eyes. Heavenly Father, thank you you're here with us. Thank you that we've known your presence already this morning. And we want to hear your voice now. We want to see Jesus more clearly. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray would you come and open our eyes that we might see him. Thank you you know us fully, Lord God. You know our weakness. And thank you that you meet us in our weakness with your grace so that we might be strengthened in you and that we might know God is for us, not against us. And so, God, would you come? Just really need you. And so just look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've been thinking a little bit about um, certain well-known phrases in life which are counterintuitive, like less is more. I'm not really sure what I think about that. When when it comes to cake, I tend to think more is more, actually. Um, But maybe with Marmite, yep, okay, less is more, probably. Um, Or the phrase, go with your gut. Now, taken literally, I generally don't want my gut to go anywhere. Thank you very much. And um, certainly don't want to have to chase it down. And the kind of passages that my gut might go down, I'm not sure I want to go there. So that's a bit of a weird phrase as well, kind of counterintuitive. Or the phrase, dive in head first. Um, Well, I remember as a child learning how to dive in a swimming pool, and it just felt like terrible advice to say, put your head in first, because surely that's the most precious part of me. I'd rather put my feet in first. And yet, in the end, it, it turned out to be a true statement. There's only one way to learn how to dive. Head first. We're in, the, we're in a series looking at some very famous teachings of Jesus found in Matthew's Gospel. And these are teachings that have become known as the Beatitudes. And they are pretty counterintuitive statements, some of them. But unlike the phrases we've just thought about, Jesus' statements are not good advice. They're not instructions of good attitudes you should try to develop in order to get something. They are, in fact, announcements of wonderful news. Blessings spoken over people in particular conditions, like saying, good for you. But most of these descriptions are pretty counterintuitive. Good news is announced to unlikely hearers. The blessed ones are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek. So Philip Yancey um, summarizes the Beatitudes by saying, lucky are the unlucky. Well, we're into the third of the wonderful news statements that Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 this morning, which is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word meek. To me, that word, as understood today, can sometimes conjure up images that I'm not so sure I want to be associated with, like being a pushover or spineless or or, or wishy-washy. But that's actually not what's being described here at all. The Greek root word for meek is preos. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but preos, uh, which means humble, gentle, considerate. Aristotle, who is the ancient Greek philosopher, actually used the word meek, preos, to describe the golden middle between too much anger and too little anger. So so being meek is about the balance between recklessness and cowardice. But actually, more helpfully, Jesus uses the same root word in Greek to describe himself in Matthew 11, verse 29. 
There Jesus calls all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him to find rest. And goes on to say, because I am gentle, praos, meek, and lowly in heart. So this is the same Jesus who spoke up fearlessly to oppressive powers, who silenced the intimidating intellectuals of his day with his wisdom, who calmed a fierce storm with one word. The same Jesus who took authority over enslaving evil spirits to cast them out of sufferers, and who overturned tables in the temple, which was an act of intense provocation. And this same Jesus is called meek, lowly in heart, gentle and humble. So when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, he does not mean the squidgy. That's not what he's saying. He is proclaiming wonderful news for people whose posture is humble both towards God and towards people. So we're just going to take a little while to think about that. What does it mean to be meek before God and to be meek before others? Firstly, meek before God. And Jesus' words in this beatitude actually echo words found elsewhere in the Bible. For some of his listeners sitting on that mountainside with him, they would have heard, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And immediately that would have set off some hyperlinks to Psalm 37. A bit like if I was to say to you, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, immediately you start thinking Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. Well, in the same way, talking about the meek inheriting the land would bring to mind Psalm 37 for those who are familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. The whole of Psalm 37 addresses the tension of seeing the proud and the wicked prosper, often at the expense of the humble and faithful. And sometimes it can seem like that. Some of you will know that one of my favorite films is The Lord of the Rings. And in that trilogy, there are a number of different times when it appears as though the, the powerful and the wicked are increasing in influence at the expense of the humble and faithful. So you've got these, this army of orcs in Urukai, and there's loads of them, and they're strong, and they're ruthless, and they're aggressive, and they're well-equipped, and they're boastful against these hobbits with lambless bread. You know, it just seems like a mismatch. And Psalm 37 was written by David, who was encouraging the people of God not to fret about the apparent prosperity of the brash and the wicked, and not to succumb to the temptation to be like them. It didn't work when Frodo and Sam Baggins tried to put on the armor of the Urukai. Um, using power in similar ways, the Psalm 37 is saying, no, that's not the way to go. It can be easy to look at people who have risen to great heights through being selfish and self-promoting and trampling over others or hoarding whatever they can and to think, well, perhaps that's just the way to go. I mean, they seem to do quite well, often becoming CEOs or presidents, the movers and shakers. Rather, David says, no, wait on God, trust in God, hope in God, depend on the faithfulness of God. He is true to his promises. Look for the justice of God. He will right every wrong. It's linking Psalm 37. Let's read some bits of that psalm. In verse 1, it says, Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade away like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
Verse 5, commit yourself to the way of the Lord. Trust him and he will act. Verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Verse 9, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, verse 10 says, the wicked will be no more, but the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy. Better is the little that the righteous have than the abundance of the wicked. Verse 28, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Take refuge in him. I hope you can hear in that psalm that the emphasis throughout is on the agency of God. The action of God amongst his people. The action of God in the world through his people. He is faithful to his promises so we can trust him. The meek have a posture of dependence upon God. In a world that says dog eat dog, the meek cling not to themselves and not to their own power and not to try and gain more and more and more control in their own might, but cling to God who is faithful. Not taking at the expense of others, but receiving from the Lord what he freely gives, the earth to the meek. For me, this means the wonderful news that I can give up trying to anxiously promote a particular reputation for myself or control what others think of me. Things that I'm prone to, things that I've struggled with even this week. And instead, I can receive the gracious identity that God gives me because he's the one who acts on my behalf and who bestows approval that is mine in Christ. And so Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, paraphrases this beatitude by saying, you're blessed when you're content in just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself the proud owners of everything that can't be bought. The meek are able to embrace who they are and look to the justice of God to be outworked often in and through them. Not, not a project of more impressive, not, not to project a more impressive version of themselves or to grab more power of themselves, but to depend on the faithfulness of God. It is the prior faithfulness and promises of God that enable meekness because he is good and he is at work. And this meekness before God, therefore, enables meekness before others. John Stott explains that meekness is a humble and gentle attitude towards others which is determined by a true estimate towards ourselves. Seeing yourself right enables you to then be meek and gentle towards others. Realizing that we're not dogs needing to eat other dogs. We're people created in the image of God to receive from him what he freely gives for us to be able to flourish. And so we can change the way we see others, no longer seeing everyone as competition, an inherent threat to our well-being. No longer do I need to fret about how I measure up to the person next to me. If you're anything like me, that, that can be easy to fall into. 
But actually, embracing a true estimate of ourselves frees us from that impossible work, which in turn frees us to be able to be gentle towards others. You see, this, this beatitude, blessed are the meek, is so closely related to the previous two that went before, which we've looked at in the last two weeks. As applied to us, the poor in spirit and the mourners are the meek. They're totally connected. The meek are the ones who, who are not spiritual heavyweights, but spiritual bankrupts, aware of their need, that their need is greater than their resources. And at that very same moment, you realize you're the ones who the kingdom of heaven is freely given to. Or the mourners, those who face up to their own brokenness. And at the same moment, you realize that the promise of God has already come to you to comfort. The meek are the mourners and the broken who depend upon the gracious promises of God and they're not impressed with themselves. They have a true estimate of themselves. And such humility enables them to be gentle towards others. Just finished reading this book. Normally we say if it's good enough to recommend, it's good enough to give away, but I'm not giving anything away because I've not gotten, I've not got another copy. But this is, this is a book called When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend by Mark Maynor. This is particularly encouraging if you're someone who um, struggles with mental health. This will be really, it's written by a pastor who has that story himself. I just want to read a little bit of a story towards the end of it, though, of uh, him, him, him conveying uh, the story of another pastor and how meekness worked its way out in this particular situation. John, the senior pastor of a small church in Ireland, was joined by a new assistant. We'll call him Charlie. So early on in Charlie's time, John would take him on pastoral visits for funerals and weddings and all the rest, just so he could learn the ropes. It was all pretty normal. One day they were going to visit Fred, a church member who had seriously messed up his life. Just about everything that could go wrong had gone wrong. His business had collapsed, his family was breaking up, and now the police were involved. And you know what the worst thing was? It was all the consequences of his own folly. As they walked along, the senior man asked his assistant, could you see yourself ever getting into the sort of mess Fred is in? And Charlie was quiet for a moment. And eventually he replied, it's just terrible, isn't it? My heart goes out to him and to the family. Just can't imagine it and really wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. But I guess the terrible truth in the end is that he's only got himself to blame. So, so no, I, I don't think so. I don't think I can imagine myself getting into that mess. Well, in that case, said John gently but emphatically, I think it's best if you go home and I'll go on alone. Um, having a true estimate of ourselves helps us to realize that actually I'm capable of any kind of mess on myself, left to my own devices. And the meek meet broken people in a different, in a desperate state with humble gentleness, not harsh distance or indifference. The meek are able to be gentle towards others. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But what is meant here? What is meant by inherit the earth? Okay. What can the meek expect from this announcement of blessing by Jesus? Because the meek seem not often to get very much. Uh, 
In fact, Frank Zappa was an American activist and songwriter, okay, who was kind of big in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he wrote a song entitled The Meek Shall Inherit Nothing, okay, a protest song. And this is the first verse of that song. It says, Some take the Bible for what it's worth when it says the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, I've heard that some sheik down, has bought New Jersey last week, and you suckers ain't getting nothing. That's the way that people often see meekness. You're not going to get anything if you're like that. Lenin, the kind of Russian revolutionary, is speculated to have said, trust is good, but control is better. Okay? Meekness is not esteemed by the world. Yeah, trust in God, that's good, but control is better. Meekness doesn't seem to get you very far. So what does Jesus' announcement that the meek shall inherit the earth mean? Well, as we've seen over the last two Beatitudes, the same applies here. It's both now and not yet. But in the now, there is a blessedness that comes from struggling for God's justice for the sake of the earth. A justice which will one day be fully established. And the blessedness of this is experiencing the action of God working through people for the sake of the earth. It's amazing to know God's at work in you and through you. Like the meek meeting the messed up with gentleness to seek restoration for them. Or also like speaking for justice with meek might. And there have been several examples in history where worldly power and oppression have been met with meekness, leaving a lasting inheritance of good for the sake of others, for the sake of the earth. Let me just give you a few examples of those. I think particularly of the civil rights movement. Now, it, large elements of the kind of courageous, non-violent protest was motivated by Christian conviction and a sense of the justice of God at work through these dear people in speaking up for what is right. So you've got here Martin Luther King, who's probably the most famous, leading many non-violent marches, which speaks against the oppression of black people in the States, and, and speaking from platforms about the dream he has that little black children and little white children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. God's justice at work through meekness. This is Rosa, Rosa Parks here, who's um, famous for the Alabama bus boycott. She refused to give up her seat to a white person simply on the account of the color of her skin. Um, not meeting violence with violence, but in meekness, speaking for what is right. These are um, the, the, the three photos of a group of women whose story has been turned into a film recently called Hidden Figures. Uh, if you've not watched it, I really recommend that you do. They were incredible women. I mean, they're just amazing mathematicians. I'm still struggling with long multiplication, and long division is just a, a, a concept I'll never get my head around. But these guys, these girls, were just amazing, absolutely amazing. They had just an ability, which was in many ways unrivaled, a gift from God, which they stewarded really well. They worked for NASA during the space race. And actually, 
because of the extraordinary gifting that they had, were um, invited into rooms of real influence. But because it was at a time of deep injustice and, and segregation, they suffered a lot in the process, um, often not being recognized for their huge contribution to the space race and not being allowed to go to the same toilet as white people, so having to walk a long, long way away from the office, not being able to use the same coffee, but stewarding their gifting so well and speaking up for justice and righteousness at the right times so that not only were they used to help get man into space, but to help change culture towards justice and righteousness in meekness. Um, this is a photo of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and theologian in Germany during the Nazi reign. And he opposed Hitler vocally speaking out against euthanasia in general and against the oppression and genocidal persecution of the Jews. Um, he was imprisoned in 1943 and then executed in 1945. And he's had a, a, an enduring influence on the church and on culture. This is, um, anyone know? Corey Ten Boone. Yeah, Corey Ten Boone. So Corey Ten Boone, a, a Christian lady who, uh, again, her story has been turned into a book, The Hiding Place, um, hid Jews during Nazi Germany. Um, hid them from persecution, from being taken to concentration camps. In the end, at the cost of her own freedom, being taken to a camp herself, and her, her sister died in a camp. And her influence has changed many, millions of lives. These people changed the world through their stand for justice expressed in meekness in the face of aggressive oppression. We may not ever have the kind of impact that they had, but we too, in our small ways, can make lasting impressions on the earth through the way that we live. Treating others with gentleness, not condemnation, when their life is spiraling out of control, seeking living restoration for them. Maybe serving your office with small acts of selfless kindness, like knowing people's names and making a cup of tea. And noticing when someone's done something really well and telling them. And noticing when someone seems to be really struggling and caring for them. And noticing the ones that no one else notices. Um, I work in a team where some roles have just got more prestige than others. But it'd all fall apart unless everyone was playing their, their role. Noticing. Engaging with environmental needs. We hear a lot about it in the news. The way that we re recycle, the way that we use our stuff, that's an inheritance for the earth. Calling out bullying and discrimination in your office or in your school or in your place of community. In these ways, not using force to make a point, not self-seeking but serving others in meekness for the sake of the earth, in those ways, the meek are inheriting the earth even now. But it is also not yet. It is also not yet. In the deepest sense, this announcement of Jesus to the meek is what you'd call eschatological. Okay? It is a promise of what is to come. 
It's belonging to the future, but certain to be brought into our reality of experience. Your small acts of meekness towards others may not gain you instant recognition or promotion. Rosa Parks endured terrible discrimination. The ladies of NASA suffered greatly uh, before being recognized. Martin Luther King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were assassinated and Corrie ten Boom was imprisoned. They didn't all live to see the full extent of the promise that they will inherit the earth, but they will. In fact, they are just like the heroes of the faith listed in Hebrews 11. These people who had seen God's future from afar and so lived in the present knowing that that's on its way and knowing they had a part in the home that God was building. Eyes of faith. In Romans 8 verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the present sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And Paul goes on to describe how the creation itself, the earth included, is groaning, groaning in expectation of the renewal of all things that is going to happen because of Jesus. The meek will inherit the earth at the return of Christ. And their dependence upon the faithfulness of God will be vindicated. And their gentleness towards others will be seen as glorious. Tom Wright puts it like this. He says, These beatitudes are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future. Because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is, in fact, the right way up. Try and see. In Jesus, God's future has broken into the now, rooted in history and recorded in the scriptures. He is our window into the future. In meekness, Jesus confronted the great powers of politics and religion. Accused and condemned by them, he was marched to a cross that was supposed to say, Mess with us, and this is what you get. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he was led. And yet, like a lion, he marched into battle. Marching onto the shameful cross that was supposed to wipe a person out from human memory. And yet, on that cross, meek Jesus, in unparalleled power, was in himself destroying all the corrupting powers of sin and death and evil. Every force of oppression has those forces driving it. And on the cross, it's been destroyed, annihilated in Christ. It has happened. We will see the fullness of it, for he will come again in glory. You see, Rome would fall, and the corrupt temple of the Pharisees would fall, but Jesus the Lord would rise and reign forever. And every oppressive and self-serving entity in the world will fall because Jesus reigns. He is risen from the dead and he will come again to establish his gracious and just and good rule. And every small act in that direction now is a prophetic act pointing to what's to come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the resurrection guarantees it. 
The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the psalmist says. And those who belong to Christ are co-heirs with him, according to Ephesians. And so, Philippians 2, from verse 3, puts it like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Our confidence that that is true is entirely rooted in Jesus, who has come, who has been crucified, who has risen, who will come again in glory. And even now by his spirit is active and at work in and through those who belong to him to be good news to the world, good news to the earth. Can we stand? I'm going to pray for us and then we'll finish there. Just conscious that maybe for some, at the moment you're dealing with um, oppression, injustice, in some way or form. And we would love to have the opportunity to pray for you in person. Perhaps at the end you might want to come up. We've got time and we can pray for you. I want you to know the Lord's grace towards you and his promises for you. That's where we are, though. We all close our eyes. Heavenly Father, I thank you that our hope is not contingent with our resources. I want to thank you so much that we are not those who have to speak ourselves up. We don't even have to speak up the church. Thank you, rather, Jesus, we are those who have our eyes fixed on the living God. And if we're going to boast, we're going to boast in you, Lord. For Jesus, you have conquered. And we know that like those in Hebrews 11, and like those men and women of God who we've talked about today, Lord, at the moment, it's in the form of promise and with the eyes of faith that we perceive the truth that you are Lord and will reign over everything. But Jesus, we believe in you and we trust you and you have risen and your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And you call us to mobilize to that vision, to that reality, not using our own resources because, Lord, we're weak people, but putting ourselves in your hands that you might work through us. Just as you were the one at work through Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, you were the one at work through those, those dear ladies in NASA, through Dietrich Bonhoeffer, through Corrie Ten Boone. 
You're the one who is at work through us, Lord. And so we place ourselves in your hands and say, Jesus, have your way. Spirit, work in and through us for the sake of the earth, for the sake of righteousness and justice. Lord, we look to ourselves and we see our need. And I think if we look to you and we see our provider. So in Jesus' name, may we keep our eyes fixed on you, enjoying living restoration in the light of your goodness and grace. Amen.